Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of D&D podcast, a podcast where we investigate the world of D&D and apply real scientific thought to this fictional world. I'm Justin Frazee. And I'm Dr. Betsy Shaw. And today we are going to be doing uh, a feature on some famous wizards within the D&D realm and some spells named after them. And so we picked this topic uh, since Tasha's Cauldron of Everything just came out as a reason for us personally to get into the lore of some of these wizards. Um, And then we'll take a closer look at their spells and maybe some interesting science and hypotheses regarding what may be going on with that magic. And then after that, we're going to be doing another Monster of the Month feature, and it's going to be kind of Thanksgiving themed. Yeah, so let's go ahead, dive in and get started. And let's talk about our girl, Tasha. So we didn't know much about this other than the one spell in the player's handbook called Tasha's Hideous Laughter. Yes, which I imagine most people are familiar with. It's a pretty common low-level spell. So if you don't already know, there are a certain number of spells that are named after a specific individual. And supposedly these spells were created by that individual and therefore are named after them. One famous example is Tasha's Hideous Laughter. So you were actually looking up kind of like the origin of this spell in terms of like D&D writers and stuff. And I thought Mm -hmm. I kind of had an interesting and funny story. Yeah. So apparently a young girl wrote to Gary Gygax a letter in crayon asking him to create a spell that involved laughter. And so he created uh, Tasha's Hideous Laughter. So we normally don't go through history or lore, but I think it's um, important to understand why some of these spells are named after people and how they come to be that way. So Tasha is also known as um, Natasha or Igwilv, which is a weird word to try to pronounce. It's I-G-G-W-I-L-V. She's an archmage and a demonologist and wrote the famed Demonomicon. And some of the other spells that we're going to talk about today are also created by archmages, if not all of them. And so it seems that it's probable that to create a wholly unique spell, you need to be very powerful or very learned. You know, all the other like wizards or sorcerers in the world can conduct these, you know, they they find these other spells like fireball or, you know, they're more traditional spells. But to actually create one of your own requires a tremendous amount of research and power. Yeah, so Tasha's power, like reading into her lore, she is the adopted daughter of the Baba Yaga, mm-hmm. uh, which like in our world, that is like the Russian boogeyman, boogie, boogie woman. <laughs> That's John Wick. <laughs> yeah, no, not John Wick. But this like old hag that uh, lives in the woods and is very powerful and steals your children. Mm hmm. So Tasha's Hideous Laughter is the spell that we're going to be focusing upon, but um, the new book, uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, has a few other spells that are named after Tasha. Can you kind of give us a sense of like the flavor for those spells? Yeah, so the other ones are called Tasha's Caustic Brew, Tasha's Mind Whip, Tasha's Otherworldly Guise. And uh, since we don't have the book here, uh, can't really go into detail about them, but uh, yeah. It also seems like uh some other research it says that she um is credited with some number of other spells which are uh dolor ensnarement exaction imbrew implore and minimus containment 
So it seems like she's developed some other spells that aren't necessarily named after her. So she definitely has like a big list of spells that she's created herself. But let's let's dive deeper into Tasha Sedil's laughter. I feel like I've definitely known about this spell for a long time, and I feel like it's a very it's a notorious spell. A lot of people know about it, but not necessarily about the woman who created it. So maybe we can find out more about who she is just based on the kind of spells that she's created. So why don't we go ahead and read that? Okay, Tasha's Hideous Laughter, a first level enchantment spell. A creature of your choice that you can see within range perceives everything as hilariously funny and falls into fits of laughter if this spell affects it. The target must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or fall prone, becoming incapacitated and unable to stand up for the duration. A creature with an intelligence score of four or less isn't affected. Um, And you can break from the spell by succeeding on a wisdom saving throw is kind of the gist of the rest of it. So it seems like whoever created this spell, which was Tasha, likes tormenting people. I mean, this isn't painful, but it's it's very definitely humiliating, which which connects with her history of dealing with demons and that sort of thing. Yeah, so this is a first level enchantment spell. And so we haven't really talked about enchantment uh wizards or that type of magic, but just like briefly, the one second one sentence summary of enchantment is magically entrancing and beguiling other people and monsters. And so you can get a lot of like charm spells in here, um, things that are kind of messing with people's minds and emotions, which the spell fits right into that. Mm -hmm. So what do you think has to be going on to make someone laugh uncontrollably? Well, I I suppose we could talk about what happens in our minds when we laugh, like what makes us laugh? Take being tickled. I mean, chemically. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. So laughter in general, we know that uh, we feel good when we're laughing, right? Yeah. And this is because our body is releasing uh, some specific chemicals, some neurotransmitters, uh, dopamine, and uh, it's a neurotransmitter, and then endorphins are hormones. So the release of these are going to give you kind of that feel-good feeling and make you laugh, essentially. Mm-hmm. One real-world example of a similar effect could be nitrous oxide. You know, when you go to get your wisdom teeth removed or other surgical procedure, you might be given nitrous oxide, which can create a feeling of euphoria, and some people experience laughter, uncontrollable laughter, that sort of thing. So what what's happening there? Nitrous oxide is basically giving you a mild case of hypoxia, which is starving cells of oxygen yeah i believe it's a a vasoconstrictor so it is kind of shrinking your or like you know constricting your uh veins and so arteries and veins and that's basically reducing the amount of oxygen yeah so less blood is getting to your cells and then less oxygen to them because of that so why does hypoxia give you this feeling of euphoria well glutamate can trigger that those reward systems that you were talking about those same chemicals and what happens with hypoxia is some of your cells aren't working correctly, and that creates an excess of glutamate, which then triggers those reward systems. So that's an actual example. Now, it's not as reliable as a, a spell, you know, magic, but it is something you can artificially induce in somebody. You can c- control their brain chemistry. So do you think this spell is working by, like, um, changing... The elements to basically like produce a 
nitric oxide or something like that surrounding the person that they breathe in? Or is it actually like going in and altering brain chemistry? I think just based on the summary of that school of magic you read, I would imagine it has more to do with learning how to control emotions and brain chemistry, like the actual chemistry of someone's body. Whether that's creating um, hypoxia in somebody or just controlling their reward centers, um, you know, <laughs> inducing hypoxia is a little more nefarious, but it's also possible. Yeah, I guess the spell has been aptly named hideous, Asha's hideous laughter, because basically telling, taking away oxygen from someone's brain is a pretty heinous act. Yeah. So what's up next? Yeah, so we're going to be talking, um, like I said, for this, we want to be talking about a couple of these spells that are named after famous wizards. Um, and so this next one we're going to be talking about is named after Morden Cannon. There's a couple different spells in the player's handbook. And the one I want to talk about today is Morden Cannon's Faithful Hound. So before we get into that, let's talk about Morden Cannon. Sure. So he's probably most well-known currently for the Morden Cannon uh, Tome of Foes, which is an expansion on the Monster Manual and also um, general lore, um, which we got recently. And kind of after doing some investigation, he heads up a group of magic users called the Circle of Eight. That's right. And some people refer to it as Morning Cannon and the Circle of Eight because together there's nine people and he's the leader. And they help control the balance of the planes. They make sure not one power gains an, an upper hand that could upset the balance. So at least it seems like on a base level the intentions are good, but things don't always play out that way. He, It seems like, yeah, he's not... He's good in the way that he wants to have, wants there to be a balance, but he could foreseeably oppose somebody that's good just to prevent them, to prevent them from becoming too powerful and you know, becoming corrupt. I guess. So looking up, he has an alignment of chaotic neutral, which I guess can make sense because he's not. His purpose isn't to uphold the law. He wants to strike a balance. So he'll seems like he would literally oppose anybody that becomes too powerful. Okay. Which makes him powerful himself. Yeah. I mean, if you're the head of eight other powerful wizards, then you got to be pretty powerful yourself. So. Yeah. All right. So jumping into his spells. So like I said, the player's handbook uh, lists four spells that are named after him. Um, the Faithful Hound, which is the one we're going to talk about. The Magnificent Mansion, Private Sanctum, and Sword. I wanted to talk about the Faithful Hound because I just thought it was kind of a cool and different spell. So this is a fourth level conjuration spell. You conjure a phantom watchdog in an unoccupied space that you can see within range, where it remains for the duration, until you dismiss it as an action or until you move it more than a hundred move more than a hundred or until you move more than a hundred feet away from it. The hound is invisible to all creatures except you and can't be harmed. When a small or large creature comes within 30 feet of it without first speaking the password that you specify when you cast the spell, the hound starts barking loudly. The hound sees invisible creatures and can see into the ethereal plane. It ignores illusions um, and also can deal 48 piercing damage if someone moves within five feet of it. So I thought this one was kind of cool because it's it's a conjuration spell, but like you're basically creating something invisible that only you can see. So it just has like some unique properties and twists to it. And the hound is able to see things that are invisible as well. So it seems like a little bit of a niche spell, but also just had a lot of like 
interesting tidbits in it. It seems like one of those spells it really makes me wonder what what D and D are are other people playing that makes this spell necessary that you need a it's it's basically a guard dog right it just it's a it's an alarm yeah, spell a phantom watch yeah so it, it'll warn you if somebody's coming for eight hours which I guess could be useful for resting but I mean at this point you could probably also have Lehman's tiny hut which would probably just be better because it just keeps you safe so I don't know but. Besides that, Conjuration. We haven't done a deep dive into Conjuration. And my initial, my initial question when you're reading this is, what's the difference between Conjuration and Illusion? And like, how is that applicable here? Yeah, especially in this case, I guess maybe one difference is Illusion, you're, you're creating or attempting to create something that is perceivable versus this is kind of the opposite. Is you, you're creating something, but it's only perceivable by you. Yeah, I know we talked about illusion before, and you know, without reading every single illusion spell, I would maybe have a conjecture that an illusion couldn't think on its own or act on its own. It would have to have some sort of outside uh, control, so presumably you, the caster. Whereas this, once you conjure it, it acts independently and then can warn you if someone comes. So what does it take to make something... That's physical, but invisible, but also visible to you. <laughs> um, Maybe like an, a, a stacked illusion. <laughs> like maybe there's an illusion on it that can, only you can see. Weird physics? Um, or like invisibility. Let's talk about that. Okay. Well, invisibility. We had a brief mention of how light works at the end of our last podcast when um, we got that community comment about... That was two podcasts ago. Was it? Yeah. I'm losing track of time. We talked about vampires. So, oh, no, maybe that was last, last podcast. I'm losing track of time. <laughs> In either case. So either light is passing around something or through something. So the way that glass works is there's a couple of different ways of looking at it. The, the classic way is thinking about a photon coming um, and interacting with material. And if it has enough energy to elevate the state of a particle, then it is absorbed. And then if it doesn't, it passes through. So basically something like glass, um, the photon doesn't have enough energy to uh, elevate the state of particle um and so it, it goes it's not absorbed and it passes through it's just very rudimentary explanation quick so it's possible that you, you are changing the state of your entire matter uh so that photons are now passing through you but then there's additional complications where now you get refraction where you are bending light and then you you know that's why you can still see glass because you have reflections and, and refractions where light is bouncing off of it or you know being slowed and bent through it uh and so you have complications that way so uh another possible explanation is you are instead bending photons completely around you which is the way a black hole does it if you look at a depiction of a black hole you see a ring of light passing around it and then like a halo behind it but really that's one ring of light 
is a single ring of light that you're seeing both sides of it. Um, it's just the other side is being bent around the black hole. So you can actually see behind a black hole because the light is being bent around it. Perhaps, let, let me, let's actually look. Let's see what, what, what school of magic invisibility is. Maybe that'll give us a better clue. Illusion. That's actually what I was thinking. It's, it gives us a clue of actually what's being done. It's not, I don't think, affecting light. What it's instead doing is tricking people into thinking that you're not there. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about illusion before, coming down to the conclusion that it's affecting how people see and what they see. So it's, it's much less complicated than bending light or changing matter. It's just literally just tricking people into not seeing you. So what this spell is doing is more complex, essentially. It, I think there might be a couple things going on. I guess complex is not the right word because tricking people's brains into thinking you're not there is a complex thing. Yes, but in the scale of the Dungeons and Dragons world, not as complex. You know, <laughs> spells are all complex, but they all can happen. So I think what may be happening is you're actually conjuring a hound, a phantom hound, and then... There's either an illusion on it that makes it so no one else can see it, or an illusion that only you can see that lets you see it. This is, I, I guess the essence of the being itself would be similar to a ghost, where it's, you know, it's, it's a spiritual construct, and so it could be completely invisible because it's not a part of the material plane. Or I was actually going to ask about that, because it says it can't be harmed, so I'm wondering if it's something like, it resides on a parallel plane because it mentions it, you can it can see into the ethereal plane. So maybe it actually resides there. And what you are getting is like a window into that plane to see it that others can't. But then there's the physical damage part if you get close to it. So maybe it has the ability to jump planes. Yeah, it's it's possible that it's on both at the same time. I think there's some other spells or other things that allude to being both on the ethereal plane and the material plane at the same time. Yeah, it seems likely that it's resi residing on both or maybe predominantly on the ethereal plane. And then there's an illusion on the material plane that lets you see it. I mean, I like that. I think that kind of explains in a maybe more practical and simple way what could be going on. Yeah. I mean, like, again, practical and simple are relative terms, but... <laughs> We're not trying to understand, like, big concepts. Yeah. All right, so next up we have Rary's Telepathic Bond. I'm guessing it's Rary as in library. Um, I couldn't find a pronunciation, but let's go with that. All right. So this is a fifth level divination spell. So you want me to talk a little bit about Rary first? Yes, yeah, sorry. Rary is also a member of the Circle of Eight. So Mordenkainen, who we just talked about, was the head of that. So Rary was one of the eight archmages part of that group. And he has the unfortunate name of Rary the Traitor. Mm -hmm. um, and the lore with this goes, he decided that the Circle of Eight was too quarrelsome to be effective in its goals. And so essentially tried to kill them all off. You know, very reasonable. Wow. Um, he was success successful in killing off two of the members, Tensor, as in Tensor's floating disc, and a member called Odaluk. Yeah, obviously he didn't kill them all, so his attempts were foiled at some point, but he was successful at killing two very powerful wizards, which indicates that he himself was a very uh, powerful wizard. 
Um, and if we look at his list of spells in general that he's said to come up with, most of them involve psychic or mental powers. And so some examples of these are like memory alterate, memory alteration, mind scan, mind shield, uh, protection from scrying, just to name a few. But the one that we're talking about today, which is from the player's handbook, is, as Justin said, Rary's telepathic bond. It's a fifth level divination spell, and it says you forge a telepathic link among up to eight willing creatures of your choice within range, which is 30 feet, physically linking each creature to all others for the duration. Until the spell ends, the targets can communicate telepathically through the bond, whether or not they have a common language. The communication is possible over any distance, though it can't extend to other planes of existence. That's honestly, I think the most interesting part of this spell is that they don't have to share a common language. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons that I picked this. I know that he's not necessarily a super well-known wizard, at least as of yet. He doesn't have a, a book in D&D canon to go along with him. But I thought there were aspects of the spell that were just too interesting for us not to talk about. Mm -hmm. So my initial thought as I was reading this is you could somehow tie the auditory parts of people's brains, but it can't be that because it it doesn't matter what languages you speak. So it's it's pure idea. You can still communicate through pure idea. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. I was thinking about like what are ways of communicating with people that don't involve uh, words. And so that comes usually in a physical form with like, you can think of sign language, but you can also communicate via body language. And so like- you Well, can sign language would be words. That's true. But like you can communicate fear without saying I'm scared. Sure. The thing about language is it also organizes the way we think. So even looking at the way we s structure sentences are different between languages. I'm going to assume things like jokes are not going to go across. <laughs> <laughs> jokes are usually they're colloquialisms. Yeah, they're, they're little stories or little... Uh, word plays that just don't work even if you're translating things word for word but without words with just idea you know it's possible perhaps you could come up with some sort of joke that's pure idea but it would be completely confined to the medium um one thing that's interesting is i won't get into it but you can look up what like a sign language pun would be because for us puns are things that sound similar so to someone who does sign language those things wouldn't, wouldn't go across, right? Because there's no audible part of the language, but there's visible puns you could do. So what drew you to this specific spell? Well, the language part was definitely interesting and also like connecting eight people's minds in some way, like trying to speculate about how that could even be accomplished. Like what would be the closest thing that we have to that now? Um, quantum entanglement? I mean, if you could get specific particles acting the same way on two different places, you could maybe get the same reactions out of two different minds. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I was thinking kind of more in like, I'll say like sci-fi movie terms. Eight people lay down in a circle. They plug you into like a computer and you guys all appear together in dreamland or something like that. Matrix. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> what, wait, what's that movie? <laughs> Just kidding. Um, 
but yeah, that, that kind of like an idea of like a shared consciousness that's facilitated through a machine, essentially. You, you wonder like if someone, if a group of people were under this spell for a long enough time, would they just become like a hive mind sort of thing? Maybe. Brains are so unknown. It's so hard to speculate about this sort of thing. Are everyone's synapses structured in the same way that if you fired one, you could fire an identical one in someone's brain? Like, I doubt that. Uh, this is, I mean, I assume limited to humanoids. Just, it's I just of a like, creature of, of more than two intelligence. Okay, so not even necessarily. But you can imagine, like, an Aarakocra's brain is very different than a Goliath's brain. Sure. Like, yeah. Yeah. And this is only a fifth level spell? Like, I mean, I know fifth level's not small, but, like... I feel like we're even struggling to kind of understand like what could be going on for this to happen. So it's pretty impressive magic. So one thing is when our brains are working, they are producing electrical signals, which can be picked up, referred to as brain waves. I'm pretty sure these these signals are very weak and therefore couldn't travel very far, or couldn't you know be detected from a very far distance. But perhaps you're somehow amplifying that and then having like a resonance with someone else's mind yeah i'm I'm gonna say in some way it's creating this resonance between multiple brains either through replicating electrical signals or through quantum entanglement yeah it's it'd be very complex and hard to actually do you couldn't do it in our world i don't think but in this world it's possible maybe it's just like they have little earpieces that they put in where they can talk and the earpieces like translate automatically. It's a little Guys, this magical. is my new spell. Just just plug in your cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So for our monster of the month, what happens when you leave your cranberry sauce out too long? Good question. Or perhaps you had something at your Thanksgiving table that was a little less than appetizing. And somewhere between a weird, like, solid and liquid state. Well, this uh, was kind of the inspiration for our monster of the month, which is oozes. Yeah, so oozes come in a couple different varieties. There's black pudding, gelatinous cube, which is probably the most popular and famous of the oozes. There is a gray ooze and ochre jelly. So let's talk about oozes. All right, so let's read a little bit. Oozes thrive in the dark, shunning areas of bright light and extreme temperatures. They flow through the damp underground, feeding on any creature or object that can be dissolved, slinking along the ground, dripping from walls and ceilings, spreading across edges of underground pools, and squeezing through cracks. The first warning an adventurer receives of an ooze's presence is often the searing pain of its acidic touch. Oozes are drawn to movement and warmth. Organic material nourishes them, and when organic material nourishes them, and when prey is scarce, they feed on grime, fungus, and offal. Veteran explorers know that an immaculately clean passageway is a likely sign that an ooze layers nearby. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine an ooze to be a sentient creature. I don't know what your thoughts are. It's like, I what structure is there for any sort of like nervous system if you're just... Well, I guess that's what to be determined. Like, like what's the actual physical structure of these beings? Are they like jellyfish? Well, okay. I think they're a little bit different depending on which ooze you're talking about. So the black pudding is described as 
a heaving mound of sticky black sludge. And um, I believe at some point in here, yeah, it says it can move through a space as narrow as one inch wide without squeezing. They're extremely malleable. They'll take on whatever shape and form they need to. Uh, they can climb up walls. Now, the gelatinous cube might be a little different because it is often referred to as a cube. A gelatinous cube is all but transparent, making it hard to spot until it attacks. A cube that is well-fed can be easier to spot since its victim's bones, coins, and other objects can be suspended inside the creature. So that one doesn't really say, but I imagine that it that one tends to hold its shape more than the black pudding. The gray ooze is... This is interesting. Is stone turned to liquid by chaos? Uh, which we can talk about that in a little bit. When it moves, it slithers into a liquid snake rising to strike. So the term liquid, like, I can't imagine it having, if it has a nervous system, like, nothing is organized in a way. Like, these all have, neg like, really negative intelligences. Like, the black pudding's intelligence is one. And the wisdom is, is six. So, like, anything that you may think of related to that in terms of stats are really low. I'm curious, though, like, if it's some sort of, if it's a creature that has a nervous system or some sort of other pieces that uses, like, an acidic ooze as clothing. Or I don't know, like, as it's... Like, it, there's a parasite inside and, like, the ooze itself, it's its host? Well, it's more like, like, I'm, I'm imagining jello, right? So jello's inanimate, but if there was some sort of minimalistic creature that could occupy the jello and move it around sort of thing you you could imagine maybe that some sort of this very minimalistic nervous structure perhaps like synapses and insect style motor system could inhabit the entirety of a sludge or cube and then it starts learning to use it in a bodily way so that creature then would have to be immune to the acidic effects of the ooze itself. Right. Maybe it's a creature that secretes acidic sludge, and over its lifetime it builds on it until it becomes large enough. So in that way, I mean, it's it would kind of be like a jellyfish. So like a jellyfish is a very minimalistic creature. It's got minimal nervous systems and motor functions and that sort of thing, but it resides within this, this body of whatever a jellyfish is made out of. <laughs> Protein. I mean, you know, obviously a jellyfish isn't isn't malleable. It's still like rigid. You can tear it and it doesn't go back together. It's not liquid. But something akin to that where it has it secretes this liquid or this, this goo that uses it as a body. That's what I kind of imagine. Cool. So the different flavors of oozes have different um acidic properties, I guess I'll just kind of like phrase it that way. So, for example, black puddings uh, will dissolve flesh, wood, metal, and bone, but stone still remains. Versus gelatinous cubes, um, bones and metals are not able to be dissolved and reside in there. So I think it's interesting that they have, like, different flavors of acid, although I'm not entirely sure it would all be acidic to be able to, like, dissolve these. So maybe you have to be, like, very basic. Or it's, um, or it's something corrosive, essentially. Or it's somehow like microbiomes are digesting these materials. I guess, I mean, possibly. 
I'm just thinking of like what would be necessary to like digest metal. It's not like carbon. I guess some metals have carbon in them, but versus like corroding it. Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm not saying like all the materials, but like some of them, eat away at them. I was actually thinking about. Um, I don't even want to call it a mishap. It's just like a thing that happened in grad school. So we have like a bunch of different hazardous material that we need to dispose of properly and specifically. So for example, I work with a lot of formaldehyde and so that needs to go into a special waste container. And when our container gets full, we call someone who will come and pick it up. And then that goes through a subsequent uh, specialized disposal that I don't know details of. But I think we had had a like a sealed tube that had had some sodium hydroxide pellets in it. So this is very, 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 very basic pellets. Um, like you don't want to touch them with your hands because you'll get a chemical burn. And I think we just like hadn't gotten around to calling like the collector person because we were waiting until we had a lot more waste. And they like turned to this weird gelatinous substance. And so when I think of like gelatinous cubes, I'm kind of thinking of like sodium hydroxide pellets that have like solidified in some or like change form to be this like weird clear gelatinous thing. Obviously, the book says they're acidic, but I, I make room for maybe some of these are actually like basic and yeah, I mean, I think it means acidic, not in like the scientific term, but in like the oh, it eats away at things like sort of just common usage. I'm thinking now that perhaps instead of it being one thing, maybe it's just like a colony of symbiotic microbial pieces that are just like just a colony of bacteria or something like that that work together. Yeah, that's interesting. So the black pudding specifically has this reaction called split, where essentially when its HP gets low enough, it can split into two black puddings. Um, so that would be kind of in line with maybe it being a bunch of little symbiotic things that can choose like which way they're going because those are able to function independently. One feature of oozes in general is they have uh, they kill their prey very slowly. So I wonder, like, as an adventurer, like, what it's like, death by ooze. <laughs> bad. Yeah. <laughs> really bad. Or, like, what do you think is the first substance to go? Like, hair? Flesh? Like, I imagine things like metal are going to hang around longer, even if it is capable of digesting it. That's a gruesome thought. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, once you're in, is there a way to get out? Because... It seems like there must be a, like a pretty high like viscosity or something like that, or like a lot of force that these oozes are able to create to be able to hold you within. Because you imagine at a certain point you would just like start swinging and grappling and trying to pull your way out, and that shouldn't take like several hours worth yeah, of time. But like any substance of a large enough volume like that, if it's you know sticky enough, like if you put someone, if you submerge someone into a large enough container of just jello they would have a hard time getting out and that's not anything that's like that's just gelatin and water yeah i guess that's true i've never been in a large container of jello before well let me tell you from personal experience (laughs) (laughs) so any sort of organic creature is a collection of cells that are working together right they're if you break them down to a small enough pieces they're independent little cells that are all working together as a whole to accomplish something Sure. And at least in the instance of like more advanced species, those cell types are basically like not able to function alone or like they serve like no real purpose alone. 
So perhaps oozes are just a more simplistic type of creature where they're comprised of you know, cells and like acidic gelatin substance that they secrete. And, you know, they, they still work together as a, a, a creature, but they're much more divisible. So you're thinking along the lines of like kind of a like colonial species? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely possible. I think you would, um, there would need to be a lot of whatever that smaller <laughs> subset is to make a large sized gelatinous cube. Sure. Um, which I don't think there are, that I know of, like examples of that occurring in our world. But this is D&D, so like, why not? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot. This wouldn't be the most fantastical thing <laughs> in this world, is finding a large colony <laughs> of... Yeah, and maybe with like the the black pudding, maybe that gives us hints at like how large these individual creatures are because they can smallest they can go is like one inch or something like that. So maybe it's broken up into creatures that occupy about like a cubic inch space or something like that. I think the um, the ogre jellies are able to slide under doors and through narrow cracks. So perhaps like that one is made up of um, smaller cells mini organisms like whatever you want to term them mm -hmm. but the grays the grays yeah i i feel like that one just kind of goes in its own category it doesn't really fit with the other ones i was looking up like the melting temperature for stone and it's like i knew it was like really high but well, it's like really really high depends on the stone too it does yeah but it's not even melted stone it is liquid like it is different it's not it's yeah, I was just, gray, I was just looking at like the amount of energy to turn stone from a solid to liquid state, um, which is a lot. And it says it's occurred by chaos, so we can maybe interpret this to be it's done by enthalpy. Um, so enthalpy and entropy have um, a correlative relationship, so that would make sense to some extent. But like what's going on there is still pretty crazy. It's like an equivalent of like cooled lava that's still... Um, or like molten lava that's not molten. Right. It's not hot. It's just liquid. Yeah, this is like, this is, I always come back to these examples, but this is similar to an elemental or something, right? It's like, it's probably close to an earth elemental where it's just this weird thing because it has some sort of sentience because it can move and do things yeah i guess i think of that almost like a fungus or something like that like it's in instinct is like it to survive it needs to be somewhere like damp and cool and so like it's going to like grow that way or in this case like move that way um or like those individual colonies will like um start dying but can but it can attack it can, it can attack that's like a whole other <laughs> thing so uh organization in a meaningful way which i guess like it could be instinct whatever that means but still actually the more i think about it i feel like character like things of certain intelligence like in if your intelligence is one like should you be able to attack like to understand that's what's going on this is I a mean, whole nother <laughs> another issue or would you scale the intelligence of a wasp because those things certainly attack i guess that's true i don't know 
Well, if you have uh, any ideas about that, you can send them in along with any sort of questions or discussions or topics you think we should talk about to our email address, which is scienceofdd at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.